A new study finds an algorithm that improves the accuracy of screening for prostate cancer using results from two blood markers which can improve the accuracy of screening for the disease. The study was published in the journal, Journal of Medical Screening. Prostate cancer is the most common kind of cancer found in men. More than 10,000 men die from prostate cancer every year in the UK alone. To talk about prostate disease and prostate cancer, I'm delighted to have with me Dr. N. Subramanian, Senior Consultant Urology at Indraprastha Apollo Hospitals and a leading expert in the field of prostate disease in India. Indraprastha Apollo Hospitals presents The Prescription in association with Earshot.in. Dr. Subra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Karan. Thank you. So, uh, Dr. Subra, I'd like to dive straight in uh, on prostate disease. But first and foremost, why is the prostate so important and what are its functions towards human health? See, the prostate primarily is important because it is there in all men who constitute almost 50% of the world's population. The primary function of the prostate seems to be production of a fluid which assists in the transportation of sperms and primarily in terms of the fertility, it is helpful. So that's the primary function of it. And the importance is because of the number of people who could be affected by diseases related to it. Right, right. And more specifically, I think uh, enlarged prostate or prostatitis, as it is known, um, is, is very common. Uh, uh, why is that so? You see, we look at uh, two separate components here. One is the age-related enlargement of the prostate, which is called a benign enlargement of the prostate. Second is enlargement associated with marked symptoms due to a condition called prostatitis. Prostatitis, by definition, as you would understand, would tend to suggest an inflammation in the prostate. However, it is a spectrum of disease. There is a wide variety of prostatitis, right from acute bacterial prostatitis. We have chronic bacterial prostatitis. Thirdly, we have non-inflammatory prostatitis or also non-infective prostatitis. And there is also a bacterial chronic prostatitis, which is also called pelvic pain syndrome. Right. So chronic pelvic pain syndrome is the other term because of the type of symptoms that are seen in this component. Right. And if you see people who are younger than 50 years of age, one of the common reasons of prostate-related problems is due to prostatitis. And the other importance being that it does take a fair amount of time to achieve a successful reduction in symptoms or improvement in the condition. Right. So uh, the age-related one is obviously something uh, you know uh, that that is not in our control. I'm guessing, but the bacterial versions that you've mentioned of this disease uh, are under our control, or uh, what are some of the reasons why this happens? You see, there are no very clear-cut, obvious, primary reasons for it to happen. However, 
it is obviously seen more commonly if there was either an obstruction or a restriction to the urinary passage. And urinary tract infections per se in men are often not necessarily associated with the reason. So these are bacteria often present in our own body. A small percentage might be related to sexually transmitted diseases, but majority of them are not. Yeah. yeah. So you, you mentioned that, you know, uh, there, was, there was a distinction that you drew between under 50 and over 50 uh, years of age for men who get it and the types that they get. Uh, but uh, conventional wisdom is that it is of older men, but that is not the case uh, as from what you said. Uh, you see, if we were to distinguish between, you know, if you were to look at all kinds of benign prostate diseases put together, obviously it is much higher in people over the 50. But if one were to differentiate those with the benign enlargement versus prostatitis, Prostatitis forms a much larger percentage of prostate-related problems in men under 50, while the benign enlargement tends to be far more with each passing decade over 50. Right. And how common is it? Uh, I mean, what, what are some of the statistics that you would see in your clinic of people with the prostate disease? See, when we look at, uh, see, one we look at is the prostate enlargement itself and to the associated symptoms. When you look at prostate enlargement, it is believed that when you look at people over 50 years of age, about 30 to 40% might have an enlarged prostate. When you look at people over 60, about 50% would have an enlarged prostate. When you look at men over 80, almost 65 to 70% would have an enlarged prostate. So when you look at the prostatitis segment, you would say that when you look at all the prostate-related symptoms in people coming to the hospital under the age of 50, prostatitis would be one of the most common. Right. So yeah. uh, some startling uh, statistics there that, you know, above 65, above 70, 80, the chances of having an enlarged prostate uh, rises, not sort of exponentially, but steadily. Uh, so, yes. so that is something that one needs to uh, look at. Uh, from the men's health uh, perspective. So what is it that older men can do uh, to be more aware about uh, their prostate health? And uh, when should they actually come and seek help? Right. You see, when we look at, uh, see, many of the medical conditions and from the health perspective, there are conditions where we talk about preventing a certain condition. You know, you and I know that we can prevent oral cancers, prevent lung cancers by avoiding smoking and tobacco and other things. Unfortunately, with prostate enlargement, be it a benign enlargement or a cancerous prostate, there is not much you can do in terms of preventing that from happening as you're growing older. However, the enlargement itself and potential for cancer, etc., seem to be more common in certain families. If there is a father or older brother or first cousins who have had an enlarged prostate earlier in life or a prostate cancer, the risk of the person running that might be perhaps a little high. However, however, while you can't prevent it, see anything that you can't prevent, the next obvious alternative would be to be aware of it and diagnose it early. So what we would recommend is 
any kind of change in symptoms relating to urination or associated symptoms should focus on a medical attention. For instance, when you look at, say, prostatitis, for instance, the common symptoms, while they may be associated with frequent urination, difficulty in controlling urine, painful urination, pain in the testicles, pain between the anus and the scrotum, pain in the urinary passage, low backache. These are all often commonly seen in either urinary tract infection in men or in prostatitis. Similarly, in older men with enlargement of prostate, the first noticeable symptom would be they need to tend to go more frequently to pee, may have to get up more often at night, and once they get the urge, they may find it difficult to control it. In addition, they may find that it takes a little time to initiate passing of urine, or they may need to strain to be able to empty their bladders. So these are common symptoms. If they are lasting more than a few days, they must uh, seek a medical opinion. The other worrying symptom one should always seek opinion about is if they notice blood in the urine. If they notice blood in the urine or uh, swelling in the testes, which is not painful, that should immediately also uh, you know, alert them to seek help. Right. And what are some of the... Uh diagnostic uh, modalities that uh, you would approach a patient with and the treatments uh, that you would recommend? Okay. See, when we look at the prostate, because of the rising incidence with the age itself, number one. Number two, because it is not something where if there is a cancer developing, it may not be very obvious for ease of examination in terms of just looking at it or feeling a swelling, etc. So what happens is there are certain criteria which we use and over a period of time, what we have done is that people over the age of 55, we recommend an annual checkup. Right. And for families where there has been a cancer, we start this checkup from the age of 45 onwards. Okay. So when we look at a checkup, what are the parameters we look at? One would be, of course, a history and a physical examination including a digital rectal examination by the doctor to feel how the prostate feels. Second would be a very simple blood test called the prostate-specific antigen, which again has a fairly high amount of impact on the prostate cancer itself. You know, when you look at, uh, when you look at our ability to diagnose early-stage prostate cancers, the PSA has made a substantial contribution to that. Yeah. While there are concerns that we may be over-diagnosing or over-investigating some of these people from some of the US studies, but broadly the PSA, along with the variants like the pro-PSA or the free PSA, etc., seem to form a significant role in the ability to predict a prostate cancer. So a physical examination, a blood test like a prostate-specific antigen, an ultrasound, a routine ultrasound, and where necessary, or if there is a doubt, it can be followed by either what we call a transrectal ultrasound or an MRI. The advantage of the MRI has been that it's a non-invasive method. 
to look at the probability of a person having a cancer given a clinical situation. For instance, you know, when you look at people with a PSA of less than four, the chances of there being a potential cancer is about 15%. If the PSA is between four and 10, the chances are about 35% of these people you might find a cancer. And in people over 10, if there are no other specific reasons like a prostatitis or an acute infection, then you will find almost 60% of those will be detected to have a prostate cancer, but luckily at an early stage. So these are the basic things we would do, but added to it would be when the suspicion is high, we will proceed to do a guided needle biopsy to confirm the diagnosis. In those with a confirmed diagnosis, we would do further tests to stage the disease to see is it really confined or is there an evidence of spread outside. Right. And what about treatments? Uh, how do you usually typically approach uh, treatments for a patient? So in terms of people with, say, benign prostate enlargement, majority of them, what we would do is, depending on the degree of their symptoms, the findings on the ultrasound and the urine flow, and the response to medication. We decide whether the person can continue on medication or does he need surgery. Surgery in a vast majority of these is pretty straightforward today. It is all done endoscopically. We do it through the normal urinary passage using an electrical mechanism, which is called a TURP or using a laser mechanisms, depending on the type of laser, a holmium laser, which is called a HOLEP, or we do a green light laser or a PVP or a thulium laser, et cetera. But the basic fundamental is that 90% of these people with treatment would have favorable outcomes. Right, right. Now coming to prostate cancers, Yes, I was just going to in fact come to that. Uh, so yeah. about you know, so that that uh, covers uh, enlarged prostate and you know prostatitis, uh, and I think the other big aspect is prostate uh, cancer. And I have some statistics here. You know, in 2018 we reported 1.3 million new cases of prostate cancer. So the numbers are are quite large. And I just wanted to understand uh, what is prostate cancer before we get into uh, diagnosing and treating it. Right, uh, you see. Uh, like any other organ in the body, if there are abnormal cells which develop and start multiplying rapidly, then they are cancerous. The prostate has a type of cells where the type of cancers mostly are what we call adenocarcinomas. And they are again known to occur in the older age group of people. The cancers of the prostate, like I said, they are not easy to feel or see, but can be detected early enough if we take care of the measures which we discussed earlier. So somebody on a routine evaluation, a DRE, a PSA, an ultrasound, we can pick up prostate cancer early. When we look at prostate cancers, obviously we need to talk about, is it a dangerous disease? The answer to that would be, yes, it's a dangerous disease. But the good thing, the good news is that 
when you detect people with early prostate cancer, and when you look at what percentage of these people are going to live beyond five years with successful treatment outcomes, it's almost 100%. Almost 100%. Almost 100%. Post five years. Similarly, when you look at the 10-year survival on people with early prostate cancer on a favorable uh, biopsy report, over 90% will lead a pretty decent normal life at 10 years. But when you contrast that with detecting prostate cancer at a more advanced stage, only 31% would survive five years. So it's a disease with excellent outcomes on early diagnosis and yet not so great an outcome when it is advanced. So that is why it's sort of the emphasis is on the urgency to diagnose them early. Right. So there is a silver lining uh, provided you diagnose it early. Yeah. yeah. Right. right. And what are, what are some of the risk factors for uh, developing a prostate cancer? Yeah. See, when we look at the risk factors, there are predominantly two or three statistical ones. Number one is age itself. Like I said, majority of the prostate cancers would be seen in people over the age of 60. The median age is around 72. When you look at the racial backgrounds, racial origins, we know that the Caucasians have a much higher incidence of prostate cancer compared to, let us say, somebody from the Far East. There is a statistics which tells you the chances of an average Japanese developing a prostate cancer compared to an American is one in 43. So for every 43 Americans who could develop a prostate cancer, one Japanese would. But on the other hand, we also know that the African-Americans, when they do get a cancer, it occurs at an earlier age group and they tend to be more aggressive and the outcomes tend to be poorer. The outcomes being poorer, whether it is a direct disease entity or is it related in any way to difference in access to treatment, it's not clear yet. However, these are the two things which are seen from the racial and age factors. Then the other factor we know is the genetic factor. If there is a direct first degree relative of a father or a brother, the risk is almost three times higher compared to a normal population. Similarly, a second degree relative, a cousin or anybody, or a thai or an anybody. Again, the risk is higher than normal. So these are people who we need to diagnose early. Then there are factors which have been recommended or suggested. For instance, there is a belief that people with obesity people who are on high animal fat diet are at a higher risk. But when you look at uh, control studies with very seriously evaluated statistics, they are not as clear as we would like to believe. Mm -hmm. So these are probably factors which might play a role, but how direct the impact is, we do not know. Yeah. So what are some of the health changes, uh, things that are within our control that one can do to at least improve, if not prevent, uh, prostate cancers? See, there is a, there is a kind of uh, increasing belief that if one were to look at general uh, health and lifestyles, both from the point of view of prostatitis and prostate cancer, adequate physical activity 
including movement and avoiding prolonged sitting is something that helps. Keeping your weight at an ideal level, minimizing the intake of some of the high fat and red meat, and increasing the intake of certain kinds of vegetables, including uh, higher vegetable sources of antioxidants are known to reduce, potentially reduce the risk. Uh, and this is something which is in our control. Similarly, in terms of prostatitis, it is useful that if we can maintain good hygiene, maintain very good hydration, and promptly attend to conditions which might cause an obstruction to the passage of urine, be it due to a stone, be it due to a stricture, or be it due to anything, these will certainly minimize the risk of progression. So, uh, so that that is uh, basically things that are in our uh, control. Um, uh, and you did speak a bit about the treatments uh, that are available. Uh, so if somebody gets a prostate cancer, you catch it early, you operate upon that cancer, and you know you you foresee them having a, a good uh, post-surgical sort of life and uh, quality of life. What are some of the things people should do after their prostate disease? to at least uh, return to some sort of normalcy. Right. You see, when we look at uh, uh, prostate surgery for benign prostate disease, the answer is that most of them would get back to completely normal lifestyles within three to four weeks. So we would just advise them to avoid excessive strain, avoid playing any you know, aggressive sports, et cetera, for the first three to four weeks drink more water, watch out for any fever or blood in the urine, etc. When it comes to prostate cancer, once you have diagnosed somebody with a prostate cancer, the next step would be to see whether it is confined to the organ or as it spread beyond. We do what we call a PET scan or a PSMA PET scan. And uh, the hospital where I work, we have the benefit of having been the first people to bring in a PET MRI that gives us a lot of accuracy in terms of diagnosing and staging this. So with the result of the biopsy and the staging, we will classically describe two broad courses of treatment in terms of curative treatment. Curative treatment would include either surgery, which is called a radical prostatectomy. Because we have been fortunate over the years we have currently, majority of these surgeries are done using a robotic assistance. So a robotic assisted radical prostatectomy would be the surgical preference today because one, while it achieves the same extent of cancer cure, it also enables a quick recovery, more accurate surgery, and good long-term results. Yes. Secondly, there are people, either because of the grade of the tumor, or age of the patient or other morbidities, we might prefer to opt for radiation as a primary mode of treatment, which again gives very good long-term outcomes in our studies and globally also. Third is the very elderly people, people who are 80 plus or people who have other disease conditions, or if you assume that disease has already spread beyond the prostate. These are people who do very well with a group of medications, which is called the hormone therapy, 
The good thing is these are very well tolerated with very minimal side effects and can be used for fairly prolonged periods. So therefore, we know that even advanced prostate cancer in the elderly with multiple comorbidities can be definitely treated to a reasonable extent of at least preventing very rapid progression and nobody need be denied treatment. However, having said that, there is a group of people who would say in the elderly with what we call very minor or very mild or non-significant prostate cancer, some of these people can be put on what we call an active surveillance where we would just follow them up closely with three monthly PSA and an MRI to see whether they know, whether, you know, if there is evidence that the disease is progressing or likely to progress, then you introduce treatment. So on a comprehensive thing, prostate cancer treatment is fairly well-defined, established, and very standardized. You know, if you're in different parts of the world today, you are likely to get almost similar treatments for a given stage and a grade of the disease and with, yeah. you know, uniformly good outcomes. And my last question uh, for this uh, for this episode to you, Dr. Subra, is on uh, this misnomer or myth on fertility and prostate disease. Is there any correlation between the two? See, there is no direct correlation of the prostate per se versus the fertility. But there are certain small segments. Like, for instance, we know that people with what we call very small prostates, they have a certain associated enzyme deficiency. In that category, there is a higher degree of people who may not be producing sperms or maybe producing very small percentage sperms. So that is one category when there is a direct relationship. Second is a question of the impact of fertility on prostate surgery or some of the medication which we use for prostate. We know that following prostate surgery or following some of the medication which we use for prostate, despite the sexual function being normal, the ejaculation would be impacted, what we call a retrograde ejaculation. So that may impact the potential for fertility. But other than that, no major direct impact. Right, right. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Subra, for coming on to this podcast and enlightening us. It was great to have you on. Thank you so much, Karan. I really enjoyed being here. Thank, Thank you so you. much. I, I hope the public finds it useful. They definitely will. Thank you. That was Dr. N. Subramanian from Indraprastha Apollo Hospitals who joined us for this episode of The Prescription. Do encourage your friends and family to listen to our podcast on Earshot.in or the Earshot app. It helps our tribe grow. Till the next episode, stay happy and healthy. Indraprast Apollo Hospitals presents The Prescription in association with Earshot.in.